Let's turn uh, to Joshua 13. If we turn to Joshua 13, and Joshua 13 starts with this word that Joshua was old, he was advanced in years, he was reaching the, the latter portion of his ministry. And the Lord tells him that in the latter stages of his ministry that there is much land yet to possess. And Joshua 13 marks the turning point in the book of Joshua. It's the beginning of the second half. We've traversed, traversed the, the storyline to this point of, of crossing the Jordan, of seeing God's miraculous provision. We've, we've seen uh, successful battles at Jericho. We've discovered profound lessons in, at Ai. We've seen God move in this southern uh, campaign and northern campaign. And now the Lord tells Joshua there's much to still uh, take possession of. And the Lord tells Joshua that I will drive out the people from before the people of Israel and that your task in the latter portion of your life is to assign the land for an inheritance as I've commanded you. And Joshua 13 all the way to Joshua 19 describes the distribution of the land. And these six chapters give us a vision of the distribution of the land. I want to just apply this right away for us because I'm suspecting that most of us haven't spent a lot of time in Joshua 13 to 19, if we're honest. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask you how many people have scriptures memorized from this portion. When you first start to read this portion, the thought can come into your mind like, why are there six chapters in the Bible about this? And I think we'll try to answer that. First, though, I want to remind us that we each have to carry out God's appointed responsibility within our generation. Joshua has a particular task, and his task was to lead God's people across the river. It was to, to uh, win these battles, but Joshua's task now is to distribute the land, and the real work of the next generation will be to settle and possess the land. And there is a temptation that comes in our hearts sometimes to think, well, I want the job of a different generation. But you know, we don't get to pick that. What God assigns to you in your generation is the task that you must set your heart to. In these chapters, we see that God's kingdom extends beyond us, but we have to take seriously the particular place, the position, and the specific responsibility that he's given to us. These six chapters narrate the distribution of the land into tribal portions. And it's really a remarkable list. It's a remarkable list in many ways. It's remarkable for its accuracy though. And this is astonishing. Michael Hattin writes that we should begin by noting with no small measure of astonishment that the tribal territories are faithfully preserved. They preserve the memory of specific place names and landscapes for millennia in spite of the fact that Israel ends up later exiled from the land 
And most future readers of the Bible are not familiar with the specifics of the geography. And it's a remarkable thing that these place names are preserved so accurately. And modern archaeology has confirmed that. It's a reflection of the dedication of scribes over the centuries. When you read through these chapters, it's best to see the whole. And I just want you to see the whole. The whole land is divided up into portions. And remember that the tribe of Levi is given no landed portion. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. Uh, The sons of Joseph uh, are two, Ephraim and Manasseh, and so they round out the 12 tribes. Chapters 13 and 14 describe the tribal portions given to Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River. Chapters 15 and 17 describe the allotment of Judah in the south, Ephraim in the middle, and the other half of Manasseh. 18 and 19 describe the tribal allotments given to Benjamin, which includes Jerusalem, Simeon in the south, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan spread out in the northern part. And the method for distributing the land, we read in Joshua 14, is by lot. In other words, the tribes come before God, probably with some type of... um, Stick or something like the Urim and Thummim that were in the priestly pouch. And, and in a sense, the lot was cast. Joshua is told to, to throw down the portions. And this is significant. This inheritance by lot blocks us from some kind of tribal competition to say, I want the coastland. I want this fertile valley. I prefer to be in the south. There's none of that. The portion that you and I are given is given to you by God. Somebody say amen quickly. It means that that what you have and the place where you are, the position that you're in, the relationships that you're in, the gifts that you have, they come to you by God. Somebody say amen. So whenever you look across and you think, I want those gifts, I want that place, what about my neighbor? Then somebody say, I'm sorry, Lord. Because that's not what we're asked to do. And in and, and the human heart, we tend to think we'll make an assessment and we'll choose our portion. But the Bible teaches us that God is our portion and he is the gift giver. Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Psalm 16.5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you hold my lot. Beloved, God decides the place, the position, the time of our lives. He plants you in a specific location. Some of us are big pot people, and some of us are smaller pot people. And God places us according to his will. When we look at the whole of the tribal allotments, it's much more than just arcane geographical data. The arrangement of the material, it, it, it seems dry. It seems maybe tedious, but in fact, it's a description of a distribution for each tribe each family, each clan 
has a place. Everyone has a distinct portion. You do. You have a distinct, describable set of gifts and a position and a place that's entrusted to you. Your life and everything you have, you receive from God. Nothing that we have is really of our own doing or our own making. And yet, as the land is distributed, each person, each family is given a portion, and yet there is a shared identity in that and mission. The land is a critical element in the Bible's story. Sometimes Christians in particular are tempted to read the Old Testament narrative and imagine that the land is just like stage props in the background. That the real story is what's happening with the actors and the players and God's promise. And the land just just happens to be there. But beloved, the land is a central feature to the Bible's story. God's call to our ancestor Abraham was to go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. The first word of God to a world lost in idolatry is leave everything you've known and go to the place that I will show you. And there is a profound tension there. You have to leave everything you know and start following the Lord. And he will lead you to a place. Within the narrative that starts in Genesis and extends to Joshua and Judges, the land and the possession of the land is a dominant theme. Our ancestors go to Egypt in exile, awaiting the promise of the land. The spies look for the land, and and finally we're entering the land, but the settlement of the land doesn't happen ultimately until the time of David. And we read in David that the land has rest and God's people live in the land. The historical books and the prophetic books throughout the period of the monarchy assess our faithfulness in the context of life in a particular place. Our disobedience on the ground leads to the loss of the land and exile. And the last books of the Old Testament look forward with prophetic hope to the restoration and return to the land. So the land is is a larger character in the story than we sometimes imagine. Why is that? There is a profound theology about land and place in the Bible. The land is a divine gift. It's a divine gift, meaning that God gives to us our portion. Israel can never make any natural claim to the land. They are not an autochthonous people. And I think that's the first time in a thousand year sermons that I've used the word autochthonous. And and I'm just reveling in it. Uh, I challenge you to use this word in a natural conversation this week. Autochthonism is a Greek word that means to spring up from the land. 
It means to say that like this is my land because I was here and, and my ancestors were here. And it's really the, the claim of like a native uh, indigenous person who says, this is my land because my ancestors were here. And lots of cultures in the world say, this is our land because our ancestors just sprung up from here. And you know, Israel can never say that. Israel never uses the word autochthonous. Hallelujah. Because Israel is, is a, a wandering people saved by grace through God's miraculous hand and then given a place to live as a gift. That's our story. We don't spring up anywhere. We're not native born. We don't have a human claim on anything. Everything we have is a gift and Israel knows that. And, and as a gift the land given as a gift, even though the whole world belongs to the Lord, this particular place is given as a gift. And it's a vital part of the covenant relationship and brings with it then a sense of both human responsibility and also accountability. The land matters because it gives us a concrete context to live out our faith in Deuteronomy 4 we are charged to keep God's commands so that the nations of the world will see this great nation is a wise and understanding people what nation has a God so near to the Lord what nation is there that has statutes so righteous as this law our life in the land displays God's righteousness. And in the Bible's grand story, our time in this particular land, it's a paradigm for the surrounding nations. The rest of the world is supposed to look on at what's happening here and say, who is the God that you worship and serve? Who is a God who has a, 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 a law as righteous as this? What kind of a people is there like you whose God is so near that he, call, that he answers when you call? And what God intends to do in this land, he's intending to do in all the earth. And so our life in the land is paradigmatic, it's exemplary, but it's also eschatological. Our life in the land also points forward to a future, the specific boundaries of the land of Israel that are so focal in the Old Testament narrative, not only are examples to the surrounding nations in the Old Testament, but get a hold of this, Ken Wood, they are actually prophetic, signaling what God is intending to do with all the world. God is actually in the process now of reclaiming and remaking the whole world. And you might ask what I might ask and Israel's prophets ask, and that is how will that come about? Our covenant life in the land actually reveals us to be a disobedient people in the land. How will God's mission to reclaim and remake this whole world, how will it be realized? And for that, we turn to the New Testament and we listen to our Lord Jesus' opening sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn this sin-sick world. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Jesus confers the land, the earth, to those who believe and trust in him. The land matters in the Old Testament because it's a concrete context to live out our life of faith. The land matters in Israel's hope because what God has begun here, he intends to do for the whole world. And when we turn to the New Testament, we discover that the land matters because our redemption from sin is accomplished on the earth. Jesus does not just come from heaven to teach us from the clouds. Jesus comes from heaven to earth to walk the earth, to reveal the Father, to make known what perfect obedience to God's word looks like. And in the end, the cross of our Lord Jesus is set into this earth. It's set into the land. It's set into the ground, even as our Lord is lifted up and the rocky outcrop of Calvary matters as the cross is placed into the land and makes salvation available for the whole world. Beloved, this theology of land and place, it has much to teach us. This theology of the land and, and what's being described in these chapters, it should affect us. It should affect you, it should affect me in at least three ways. Number one, it should fill your heart and mind with immense gratitude. Gratitude is such a helpful vaccination against idolatry. Idolatry has a hard time gaining traction in a heart that's filled with gratitude to God. The, the temp temptations of sin just weaken when our hearts are filled with gratitude to God. Immense gratitude for the place God has given you. It's a divine gift. And so when you look at, at the place where you live, when you look at the gifts he has given, the people that are around you, the job, the apartment, the house, the dorm room, the Bible says, what do you have that you haven't received? Amen? And when you say, God, thank you for everything I've received, your heart just fills up with gratitude and immense gratitude. But this gratitude then leads us to, secondly, a commitment to embrace the concrete context of your covenant life. Your children are your children. That means that no one else has the primary role to reflect and model God's faithfulness and love to those children but you. Your spouse is your spouse. It's on you to embrace the specific place where God has put you. And so ask yourself today, where has God placed me? And, and Israel's distribution of the land, it, it fills their hearts with gratitude. This is a gift from my heavenly father. But it also then comes with specific responsibility and accountability to that. 
God cares about how we treat the people around us. God cares with how we handle the environment and resources that are placed in our hands. And so number three, it's a challenge to wisely reflect God's vision for the world in your context. Where has God put you? And what does he want to bring forth through you? I mentioned the Australian family, Liz and Glenn, and they, they were a very dear family as we met them at the retreat. And, and they chose to follow the Lord's leading and they moved in uh, across the river, they said. They live on the other side of the river of their town. And when you ask them, why do they live on the other side? They said, well, because there are no Christians on that side yet. So, so God called us to a place where there were none. And we moved in there and lived in a neighborhood. And they moved in with their family. And, and the house next to them was dilapidated. Windows were broken, trash all around. And as they moved in and got to know their new neighborhood and neighbors, they, they began to ask, like, where are there open doors for God to, to work? What are needs in the community that we might be able to meet? And, and they, they saw that there was a great hunger to learn English as a second language among the next generation. And they prayed and said, Lord, what about starting a, a school here? What about that house next door? that's in ruins. And so they reached out to the owner and, and, and the owner didn't want to rent the house. She didn't want to rent the house because the house, she said, was cursed. It was filled with evil spirits. Three people had died either in the house or closely connected to the house. And the whole town said, we don't want to even go in that house. And they prayed and they asked the Lord. And eventually the woman said, I'll rent you the house. And so they went in and they cleaned up the house and they repaired the windows and they transformed this accursed house. And they started a school and 30 kids came to learn English. And as they come, relationships have developed with parents. Natural conversations with the gospel have come up. And this cursed house now has a new name. And it's called the house of light. And it's beautiful. And it's a little outpost of the kingdom of God in Chiang Rai. Where has God placed you where does he want to reclaim the world through you we receive what God gives us with gratitude we embrace the concrete context and then the challenge believe it or not from Joshua 13 to 19 is to allow God's new creation to start coming forth through where he put you. That's the challenge. And, and if we're honest, that's a high calling, isn't it? 
I mean, we don't have the strength and resources. And in fact, we sometimes accomplish the opposite, don't we? Sometimes, even though we name the name of Christ, we're entrusted with relationships, responsibility, and resources. And yet sometimes we act in ways that discredit the Lord. Sometimes we act as signposts to the old creation instead of pointing to the new. And that's why we need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ who bears the sin of the world, who walked this land, who confers the kingdom and the earth, and who gives us an inheritance in him. He is the ultimate means by which the new creation springs forth. Father God, we thank you that you have met with us. You have welcomed us, Lord, into your presence. You have seen the clothing of your beloved son and recognized us as family members. Lord, we pray that you would send us out as family members, bearing in our lives and on our lips a testimony of your grace, of your mercy, of your gift. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us and that you would help us to embrace the context you have placed us and that you would bring forth new wine and new creation in the lives and spaces around us this week. Lord God, we love you because you have first loved us. Send us forth now with your blessing, for we ask in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said together with one voice, Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here in worship.